Welcome to a very special episode of the Underground Bunker podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega. This week, a story we have been covering for a long time, the disappearance of Shelley Miscavige, suddenly became national news, thanks to a joke by comedian Jared Carmichael as he was hosting the Golden Globes Awards. For years, we've been telling you what we've uncovered about Shelley, the wife of Scientology's ruthless leader, David Miscavige. Shelley used to help Dave run Scientology, but in late August or early September 2005, she vanished from Scientology's secretive international management base near Hemet, California. Two years later, in 2007, she was seen at the funeral of her father in the presence of a Scientology handler. But since then, there's been no confirmed sighting of this person who used to be a very visible figure in Scientology. You know, if you've been reading our reporting, that we believe David Miscavige had his wife banished to a small mountain compound near Lake Arrowhead, California, that is operated by a Scientology subsidiary known as the Church of Spiritual Technology, or CST. And yes, we hear from readers all the time that they have a hard time believing that Shelley is still alive, but we have reason to believe that she is still living at the CST base, which is often referred to as Twin Peaks, the name of a nearby hamlet. And yes, Shelley may be resigned to her fate. A couple of years ago, we were interviewing various people who knew Shelley for an unnamed project that we couldn't publish anything from. Until now. On March 15, 2021, I knew that my friend Ron Miscavige, father to Scientology leader David Miscavige, had received a medical diagnosis that he had only weeks to live. I called him up in part to ask him about his memories of Shelley, and we spoke for about 40 minutes. Ron died several weeks later in June 2021. He was a wonderful man, a great trumpet player, and I'm really glad that I got to know him. Now, I am going to publish material from the conversation we had that day in March 2021 with some explanations from me to help listeners follow what we're talking about. Also, I will apologize now for the technical quality of the call. At the time, I thought that Ron and I would have a chance to have a more formal recording session later, but that turned out not to be the case. We'll start at the beginning of the call as I asked about Ron joining Scientology's elite sea organization, which requires signing a billion-year contract. I wanted to find out when Ron had first gotten to know Shelley, his daughter-in-law. Are you feeling a little better after your shower? Oh, yeah, way better. Yeah, I, I just, I want to do this before I work out, because once I take a workout, I like to take a nap, because I take pretty severe workouts. Tony, I'm 85 years old, so, uh, you know, I'm still walking. <laughs> Good for you. Well, I'm going to test your memory a little bit. Are you ready? Go ahead. Uh, you didn't get into the Sea Org until 1985, right? That's correct. So when did you first become aware that Dave and Shelley were an item? I mean, you weren't around much, were you? Uh, how do you mean when I was in the Sea Org? What, were you talking, what are you talking about now, Tony? Well, let me ask you this. Were you at their wedding? No. You were? They got, they got married before I came into Sea Org. Right. When did you first meet her then? Well, 
<clears throat> I actually met her prior to joining the Sea Org, as far as I remember, because there was a guy, there was an attorney from Boston named Flint, and he right. was trying to say that David somehow was stealing gemstones that belonged to the church. So my first wife and myself were called out to, to the international base in Hemet, and uh, they, did, they wanted to make sure that you know, we were cleaned up. In other words, we got a, a sex check out there. And I think I met Shelly when I was there that time. That was uh, that was before I ever joined the Sierra. That was probably in the late 70s. And then uh, when, did, when did you hear that they were getting married or anything like that? Well, no, he told me they were getting married before they got married, as far as I know. And because we, we used to be in pretty good communication before I was in the Sea Org. Okay. And uh, I'm sure he told me about that, you know. But you didn't go to the ceremony? No, because it was at the end base. And, you know, I, I wasn't in the Sea Org at that time, so I'd have no reason to go. It wouldn't be in the father. And that was strictly, at that point, all Sea Org was at that wedding. So you probably didn't see a lot of her before you joined the Sea Org then? Not probably. I didn't. That's a fact, yeah. The Boston attorney was Michael Flynn, who threw several big lawsuits at Scientology in the 1970s. Ron indicated that he had been summoned down to Int Base to receive a SEC check. A security check is an intense Scientology interrogation done with an e-meter. It was then, he says, in the late 1970s, that he thinks he first met Shelley Barnett. She was one of L. Ron Hubbard's Commodore's messengers and had served Hubbard on the ship Apollo when she was still a young child. Serving Hubbard in Scientology was really all she had ever known, and she married another Commodore's messenger, David Miscavige, at the end of 1980 when she was 19 and David was 20. Five years later, in 1985, Ron himself signed the billion-year contract of the Sea Org and moved to Int Base to serve under the pleasure of his son and daughter-in-law. And then by the time you did join the Sea Org, what sort of impression did you have of her? Well, she was, she was always nice to me. She was a nice person. Um, she was a stickler for details. I remember one time going in her office and her showing me her uh, appointment book and everything was laid out in a perfect fashion, you know. Um, she made a point of telling me that I have to hold a higher standard than other Sea Org members because I was David's father. That, that was a big deal to her, that I, I would not be given any special privileges, uh, that they didn't believe in ne nepotism. And uh, this is, uh, I just had to hold a higher standard than other Sea Org members. And do you think she did that because she wanted to make sure you didn't make Dave look bad? Oh, I'm sure that was the reason. I mean, you know, just if, if I got out of line or was a, a, a downstat or just, you know, a problem, that definitely would reflect back on him. All right. And so once you settled in there uh, at in base in the Sea Org on a routine week, 
how often would you see the two of them? Mm, well, if we were working on a project, uh, I would see quite a bit of David. And sometimes Shelley would be with him because, you know, she was his communicator. And uh, they would both come into the music area and, you know, see what we had to offer. And uh, he would, you know, correct our mistakes or whatever. So it was on a fairly regular basis, I would say. Did she ever offer corrections to your music? <laughs> no. No, the only one that would offer that would be David. I see. Yeah. Ron had been a professional musician, a trumpet player, since his adolescence. And once he joined Scientology's Sea Org, his work with the music division was subject to the same stats as any other, with severe punishments metered out to anyone who was downstat on a given week. Even the musicians worked long hours for essentially no pay and could be disciplined at any time by David Miscavige, who would review their work. Did you ever get to see the two of them on a social basis at all? You know, not that I remember. No, not really. I mean, uh, that wasn't part of the routine in the C organization. Look. I was there as a staff member called Ron Miscavige. And I say that because on a regular basis, if Dave came down into the area, he did not refer to me as dad. It was Ron. Now, on my birthdays, uh, which he always treated me very well, uh, there's a place inside the eating area. The, the place where we eat is a big mess hall called MCI, which is short for Massacre Canyon Inn. And that holds maybe 400 people on a, at a meal. And there's a couple big round tables. And on my birthday, I would be, well, David would send down from LA, from a restaurant, some fabulous meal for me. And it would be waiting at that round table. And of course, Becky and myself would sit there and eat that meal, and, and in a card he sent me, it was always, Dear Dad, always sent me nice presents. Uh, that was uh, like a special time, a special day, and I could sit there as long as I wanted to. So we, Becky and I sometimes would sit there for like two, three hours just enjoying it and having the desserts and everything. But, would uh, David Shelley join you on that occasion? No. No, that was just uh, myself and, and my wife, Becky. Oh, Okay. No, I'll, I'll tell you, it was two separate lives I lived almost. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, not truncated that badly like I was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I don't mean that. I'm talking about I was – there were times when I would be sitting outside of MCI. There was a little flower bed there and built up of stone walls on it. Sometimes he'd come out of where the room he was in. And just shoot the breeze with me as, as my son. It was very pleasant times I'd sometimes have with him out there. But then there's the other times when I was working when if we screwed up, well, we, we paid the price, you know. Give me an example. Okay, I'll give you an example. We were on the ship, the free winds, and, uh, we had a guy stand up. You know Dougie Fresh? 
Yeah. Okay. Dougie Fresh was performing with the band, and he got through doing some number, and then he started talking about how he finished his Method 1 ward clearing in 20 minutes, and that his kid was picked up by the cops, but he really wasn't a bad kid. It was just that he was traveling with bad company. As he's doing this, I just felt the blood leave my head because I thought, what are you doing, man? Now, what was expected of us? Because for that, for him doing that, he wasn't punished. The whole band had to work in the bilges. Do you know what the bilges on a ship are? Yeah. It's the lower bowels of the ship where you have waste oil. It's, it's about 120 degrees maybe or maybe hotter. The air is stench-filled. And we were down, we had to go and work down in the bilges. And uh, that was tough on me because uh, prior to that, I had a little bit of a heart condition. I, I think I had, uh, you know, when your heart beats real fast and you can't stop it. I forget what it's called now. AFib. But in, yeah. in those days, at the Gold Base, they didn't treat it as that. They just said that I was drinking too much coffee. I should get a little better rest and, uh, you know, don't smoke as much. So I had that condition, and we worked down there, and uh, I was you know, basically the engineers brought me up and said, look, come on up here and take a rest for a while. So that happened, and, and Dougie was not punished at all. Ron led the orchestra that played on Scientology's cruise ship, the Free Winds, when his son David was aboard. And it may be a little alien to those outside of Scientology, but in the example he just gave, Ron explained that Doug E. Fresh had caused a major problem simply because he had chosen a public moment to describe some legal troubles his son was having. As Ron explained, this was a huge no-no. But instead of Doug E. Fresh being punished, the entire orchestra was made to work in the bilges of the ship, a dangerous assignment for an older man with a heart condition. A little later, Ron explains why he and the other musicians were punished for what Dougie Fresh had said. It was expected that Ron should have led the orchestra to drown out Dougie Fresh as he began going off script. What was expected of us is yeah. that I should have started the band playing and overwhelmed his voice so he couldn't, the audience couldn't hear him. Uh, that was expected. Now, for me to do that to an artist, think about that for a second. How would that look? Yeah. Right. The audience would say, those ignorant bastards, he's trying to say something. Why are they doing that? So when I say I was caught between a rock and a hard place, that truly was a rock and a hard place. And, of course, we paid the price, not Dougie. Between a rock and a hard place, that's where Ron found himself, trying to live up to the Sea Org's exacting standard and being ever fearful of letting down its leader, his own son. The work was around the clock, the liberty's almost non-existent. In that environment, we wondered, did he ever have much of a chance to get to know his daughter-in-law? Do you ever remember having kind of a heartfelt conversation with Shelley about your situation or her situation in those years? Not really. You know, it, uh, we, we wouldn't go privy on stuff like that at all. The only time she would get me in was maybe to uh, 
tell me, well, now you shouldn't have done such and such. In other words, manners or whatever, you know, better manners or, you know, hold a higher standard or do better. It was never that we ever talked about it, her saying, oh, this is a bitch or whatever, you know, and, and me complaining to her. That that was not part of it at all. Now, let me tell you what some other people have told me about her is that, uh, like, Valerie has told me this and Mike and some others that, yeah, she could be a tough, you know, Sea uh, Org official of her own, but that in some ways, you know, if Dave really had it out for somebody, she'd find a way to put that person in another part of the base just to kind of lessen the blow, you know, just to try to try to come in between Miscavige and other people, just to try to make, you know, make things less difficult for people around Dave. Did you ever see any of that where she was trying to try to at least be a little bit of a buffer against his sort of temper and everything? Uh, no, I actually didn't personally see that, but I know that to be pretty true from other people telling me that. In other words, I've had people tell me just what you're saying right now. Okay. And uh, now, in the years 2004-2005, were you right. still around in base then, or were you on the ship, or were you traveling? Oh, what no, was the deal? No, no. I, I was at the international base. What happened on the ship is that they stopped letting us go there as a band. And they had the band from the Mad Hatter. You familiar with Mad Hatter Studio? There was another band there and a, a fabulous piano player, Emmanuel. And they used to go to the ship. We, we no, no longer went there. But I remember that year, Either 2004 or 2005. I mean, I just can't say exactly which. Well, let me well let me let me jog your memory because 2004 July was the Tom Cruise birthday when he went to the ship, and I remember seeing you on that video performing for Tom Cruise on the ship. Right, I was there. What I'm saying to you. It was after that that we last lost the game. But I, okay. I was there, and I basically, well, I was leading the band at that point. Right. That that, party. Yeah. I've seen oh, you yeah. in that video. Looked like you were having a good time, actually. Well, <laughs> let me tell you something. That was a moment to be remembered because that was kept totally from Tom Cruise. And then when he walked in, the door from the, oh, there was a, a, what the hell was it called? The La Paloma. It was a little lounge. He walked in the door. The band started playing. And you could see the surprise on his face. He was totally shocked, you know. And it was, uh, you don't want to talk about a surprise birthday party. That, that was it for him. I remember him jumping up on the stage and singing a good old rock and roll. And did you ever see somebody dive on their chest and they bend their back so it brings them to their feet? It, it's pretty much of an athletic move. He did that a couple of times. I was I was really amazed. You know, that's great. Now let me also jog your memory and see if you have any recollections of this. That was July of two thousand four. Yeah. T two months later. 
in September 2004, there was the grand opening in Madrid. And this was just a few weeks before IAS when he got his special medal. You were at, okay, were you at Madrid? You weren't at Madrid, though. At the what? The Madrid opening in September. Yes, I was. I was at that opening. But he spoke Spanish. Well, very slowly, but nevertheless, he did speak Spanish. But I went there with another person to set up the entertainment for it. And so we went around and found these dancers and uh, some unbelievable guitar players. I remember the one guy was so good. I said to him, you know, you could play for Chick Corea with your talent. And they were that good. So I was there to set up the entertainment for the opening. Okay, that's great. Now, it's supposedly at that opening when Tom Cruise told Dave he had, you know, he had recently broken up with Penelope or a year before or something, and he said something about needing to find another girlfriend. Right. And so that's when Dave put Shelley on the project to audition women to bring him a new girlfriend was after that Madrid opening. I was not privy to that conversation, though. Uh, And you weren't part of those auditions or anything like that? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. Okay. Then October, just a few weeks later, was the IAS event in England where they gave him the special uh, big medal. The, The Medal of Valor. I was there for that also. Tell me about that. Well, I don't know what there's to tell, but that metal, if you swung it around, you could break a a wooden pole with it. It was big. And uh, I remember him going on stage and uh, just, well, he he made a point of telling the audience what a great leader David was and that he was privileged to work for such a leader while Dave was on the stage, you know, and he acknowledged Dave. And then uh, once he got the medal, they saluted each other, gave, gave each other a big hug, and uh, it was a big deal. It was a big moment in uh, in those events, I could tell you right now. Right. So that was October 2004. Right. Then in November, the next month, is when they had selected Nazanin Boniati to date they, uh, Tom, after this audition process. Yeah. Okay? So Nazanin dated Tom from November 2004 to January 2005. Then, right. then they broke up, and then a few months later, in April 2005, is when Tom and Katie went public that they were dating. Right. So now, between April 2005, when Tom went public that he was dating Katie, and September 2005, during that three months, is when Dave and Shelley's marriage apparently really fell apart 
And Mike has talked about it with me, about the signs he saw. Valerie's talked to me about it. What about you? In that period between April 2005 and September 2005, do you remember seeing any signs that there was trouble in that marriage? Tony, you're walking down a dark alley. I did not see that at all. I hate to say that, but that's the truth of it. I can't, I can't say I observed anything on that. That was out of my area, and I know what they said about it, and I believe that, but uh, I was not. What did they say about it? No, what what you just said about Mike saying he. he oh, Mike and Valerie, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's them. Was it was in that period that Dave went to L.A. to work on the basics project, and Shelley stayed back at the base which they all said was really unusual for them to be apart. And then when he came back, he saw that she had filled in the org board. She crated up his belongings to renovate the villas, and he threw a pamper tantrum. He went back to L.A., and a week later, she was driven away from the base, and nobody saw her again. And, I mean, we know that she went up through CST. Were you aware any of that was going on? No, actually, I was not. The only reason I knew that she was gone, for sure, because I didn't see her for a while, was, I guess it was the next year on our birthdays, because my birthday is January 19th, hers is January 18th, and every year I would send her a gift. Now, that's just the day before my birthday. I would get an acknowledgement to that gift the very next day without fail. And this year, I sent a gift, which was following what you just talked about. I didn't hear from her for about two or three days. And I thought, well, maybe she's on a mission someplace. In other words, I I justified why that didn't happen. And Interesting. Oh, yeah. I, I thought maybe she's just on a mission. But about three days after I sent it, I got uh, an acknowledgement that was very, like, almost childish. I want to thank you for this nice gift you gave me. You know, something like a kid would write that a parent told him to write. And I didn't know what happened exactly until I left, until I escaped. Six years later. What's that? Six years later. Yeah, that's right. Now, me personally finding out, though. I'm not talking about other yeah. people saying about it. Yeah. Ron then began telling me a story I had heard before from John Brousseau, that one way they knew where Shelley had been taken after her disappearance was that the int base had a mail system that used old-fashioned pigeonholes, and any mail that was addressed to Shelley was always put into the pigeonhole for mail that was going to the CST base at Twin Peaks. But Ron told me something I hadn't heard before, that Shelley was sent along with two other women from the base. One was her auditor, the other her handler. An auditor is Scientology's version of a counselor, but it's a much more intense relationship. Ron said that Shelley's auditor was named Antoinette. It's actually Antonella, and her last name is Tizzy, spelled T-I-S-I. And along with the two of them, another woman was assigned to watch over them. She was Shelley's handler, 
a woman who most people seem to have known by her married name, Anne Rathbun, even though she had split from Marty Rathbun several years before. She's known today as Anne Joasem, J-O-A-S-E-M. Since my interview with Ron, I have confirmed this with another source, that at least initially Shelley was actually sent into banishment with two other women, who may be with her even today. I then reviewed the situation with Ron as I knew it. Miscavige came back to the base, saw that she had done the org board and cratered up his stuff. Nice. He blew his stack, went back to L.A. in a, in a tan- tantrum. She grabbed a car and drove to L.A. to save her marriage. Well, and there you go. Came, and, it was, and, and that failed, and she came back to the base. Valerie confirmed that for me. And right. now you're the third person to tell me about that. Yeah, I knew all. I knew all that. The only thing I didn't know was that Antoinette and Anne went to CST with Shelley. Do you think those two people are with her now, fifteen years later? You're asking me if I think that. I have, yeah. I have no proof one way or the other, but I would say this: that possibility exists in my mind. Yeah, I'll you know, check I, that out. I, I, I have any proof of that happening or where they are, but with that situation going on, and you say that Anne showed up at a funeral of uh, Shelley's dad, yeah, I would say that possibility exists, that they are still there. There's no question. Anne Anne was her handler at her father's funeral. Well, she's been her handler ever since she went there, probably. Wow, wow. It's it's really a sad story. I got to say that to you, my friend. John Brousseau told me this. He said that David will keep her there until she dies. What do you think? Who said that to you? Brousseau, JB. Who? John Brousseau, JB. Oh, yeah. Well, John has a pretty good handle on this stuff, too. He's been right. He was David's handler. You know that. Well, I know he was his brother-in-law for 16 years. No, not, not his enabler. I'm sorry. I used the wrong word. Like, if there was any project that had to be done, he would turn it over to John Brousseau. Yeah. Well, you know, John was married to Shelley's sister. I know that, yeah. Many years. Yep, I know that. Since you came out... Has any member of Shelley's family, her sisters or her cousins, ever reached out to you to ask about her? Never. Not a single time. Wow. Yeah. What do you say to people who people who always ask me, why doesn't Dave just trot her out and, you know, make a video of her just to show people she's okay? Tell, explain why he doesn't do that. <laughs> You're talking about me guessing why he doesn't do that? I mean, no, you know it. You know it. No, but how the hell would I know why he does things or why he doesn't do things? He'll do a thing that is right in his mind, regardless of whether it's right or wrong in the physical universe. And that's how he operates. That guy has achieved 
that what he's done through the attainment of power. And there's a Lord Atkin from England that's been made it, quoted many times. He said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think this is what's happened to David. And he went from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde. So anything he does or anything we think he should do, because that would probably handle it for a lot of people if they saw Shelley and uh, she was okay. Well, probably she's so thin and frail from living that type of life under everyday pressure. Who the hell knows what she looks like? That might be the worst thing you could do. You know, she might look like death warmed over if you brought her out. Who knows? Right. Good point. Yeah, you know, what I mean? you know what I mean, Tony. You can't. There's no way you can live that type of life for that many years and walk out like, uh, you know, you just walked out of a, a uh, getting your hair fixed and you just left the gym. You were working out. It beats you up physically. It, it, it shows. Yeah. Do you think she's resigned to her fate? Yes. In so many words, yes. Look, you got to remember, she's been under the tutelage or whatever you want to call it of L. Ron Everett since she's a little girl. She thought everything of him, I'm sure. And, uh, for her to take an about face on it and say, I've been wrong for all this time, man, that's a lot of crow to eat, Tony. It, yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people just can't do it. I mean, it, it happened to me, uh, with a dear friend of mine who now is all, he's dead. Fernando Gamboa. You remember that name? Was that who Terry was married to? Yep. That's who Terry was married to. I, I spoke to him at least two or three times a week, and one time he said to me, Ronnie, let's face it, we were conned. And uh, I ended the phone call, and I'm walking from our living room into the kitchen, and in that hallway, there is a full-length mirror. And I stopped, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I said, you were conned. Do you know that was the moment I started peeling the onion? At that wow. very moment. I thought to myself, God damn it, I was conned. I, I had to eat crow on it. Now, when I say you have to eat crow, you can't say I was conned. But the reason I felt that way was, no, you can't justify it. You have to just say I was conned. And uh, I, I do a program called uh, Storytime and Life Lessons. And I say on that program, one of the hardest things a person can do is admit they were wrong. Yeah. Some people would rather take a bullet in the head than saying, yep, I was wrong. No justification, no reasons why, just flat out, you just were wrong. And I, when that happened, I started examining all the things I thought about. Covered. They just start peeling off. You know, people talk about like the skin of an onion coming off. That, that's what happens. Okay. We lost Ron Miscavige about three months later, on June 28, 2021. But I'm glad I had this opportunity to ask him some questions he hadn't really been asked before about his experiences in the Sea Org and his relationship with his son's wife, Shelley Miscavige. One surprising thing I learned 
is that not only was Shelley sent to disappear at the CST base at Twin Peaks, but two other women were sent along with her. Are they still there with her today? We don't know, but we're trying to find out. And we hope to have much more information about Shelley for you soon. This has been your proprietor, Tony Ortega. I'm not